It is nice to, to be back here, back here at New York Film Festival, a place where last year we had to experience it as a drive-in. It feels like we've, we've come to a whole different sort of chapter of sorts to be back on the ground here. But also, it feels like it's sort of on a continuum because I saw you in New York a couple months ago, Anne, uh, when we did this in the Tribeca Film Festival. So I guess what I'm curious about is I don't want to do that thing where I treat you as an Angelino or Angelina because I know you're from here, but what does it feel like to come back? What's different about being back this time a couple months later? I grew up um, on the Upper West Side, going yeah, to the yeah, Thalia and the New Yorker. and A local the, girl. The, you know, the film festival was the fall. It was the start. It was a big thing to look forward to. I was thinking about what were some of the first films I saw here when I was uh, in my early, you know, in my 20s, you know? It was probably The Lace Maker um, with, with Isabelle Huppert. Um, it was here on opening night, so it comes full uh, yeah, circle. Yeah, Isabel and I go way back. <laughs> but I, I love it here. And it, there's an energy and a crispness in the air. And it's uh, opening night uh, is always, uh, because it's a movie nobody's seen before, an extraordinary moment of discovery. And so Tragedy of Macbeth certainly fulfilled that with uh, Joel Cohen and Francis McDormand and Denzel. Yeah, it's, it's funny because on the last podcast we were sort of anticipating this movie and had this working idea of what it was, but then to see it in that room, in that context, you realize why it's here. I mean, it's that that you could not have asked for a, you know a bleaker opening, but it's a be the best way to have a bleak subject matter and have it celebrated is is to put it here. Well, let's let's be honest. The New York Film Festival represents a certain kind of patina. Uh, a certain level of artistry. Um, there are mainstream movies here like Dune. Uh, I've seen it, and it's incredible. Um, but, but it is, it, that too fulfills a certain level of artistry and, and achievement. And, and that's what, that's, you, you can't get the tragedy of Macbeth uh, a better audience than the one you have here. Yeah, I've really enjoyed exploring the lineup, actually, because Tragedy of Macbeth was, was very cinematic, but also high profile. At the same time, it was, what I appreciated about it was that it kicks off this narrative of what do we need film festivals for? You know, to, if that movie just showed up on Apple, as it will at some point in January after it's theatrical through A24 in December, it wouldn't necessarily have the same kind of impact that it might now because of the buzz that comes out of a New York Film Festival event. And then they put other things in Alice Tully Hall that will live or die on the basis of that. That audience might go see the new Romanian film from Radu Jude, Bad Luck Banging, which is a really hard sell, but is awesome. And well, even, got it. even the films I'm choosing here, a lot of them are films that built up a certain buzz and awareness through critics and, and conversation at Cannes, and now I can catch up with them here, like Ahmed's Knee, uh, Souvenir, Part two, which I loved, by the way, Beautiful better movie. than the first one. Really cool, really good movie. Yeah, if you weren't into the first one, I highly encourage you to see the second part. I think it was a brilliant gamble, also by A24, to invest in both parts of this story because the second one is really the payoff. It's like a series that you've invested in and you get the finale you've been waiting for. Now, does that translate into a release because you gotta see the first one? I don't know, that's an interesting question, but Great that it got the New York stamp of approval. I caught up with a movie from Cannes that I missed called Hit the Road, which is the directorial debut of Pana Panahi, Jafar Panahi's son. And this was a film in director's fortnight that Kino Lorber is putting out later this year. And I was really struck by how great it was. I mean, really, it felt like a singular vision 
But if you put it in new directors, new films, say next year, it would be sort of meshed in with all these other kind of first time filmmakers. And this really is a way of saying no in the main slate we're going to celebrate a, a fully realized filmmaking vision. And this, it's, it's a great sort of like melancholic road trip comedy. I can't wait to get you to see it at some point because we have to talk about it more. But there's something else I wanted to bring up, which is that even on this business trip to New York, you're living in multiple worlds at once. Last night, just a couple blocks away from here, we came out of the new James Bond movie and then you know, passed by the red carpet for New York Film Festival, and then got a press release announcing a new CEO for the Sundance Institute. So Life goes on. Life goes on, and there's so many different things go going on at once, and I think it's worth asking, in this particular instance, how you connect the dots, because for example, there's a new James Bond movie coming out, and I think for general moviegoers, they're more likely to know about that than most of the lineup in the New York Film Festival, or that, Sundance got a new leader. And I, I think it's worth looking at why are these worlds related to each other? Well, they're related. Uh, part, part of what I was going to say about the tragedy of Macbeth is that is the New York Film Festival couldn't be more important for a movie like that because we don't know how long it'll be in theaters. And the truth is that even the big hits, even the movies that we know everybody likes, movies like Bergman Island, um, Titan, they're going to be going out much wider than usual. They're not going to be platformed, and they're not going to be in theaters that long. They're going to go straight to PVOD, which is where the money is these days. And the distributors aren't willing to take the risk um, of, of throwing money down on a platform uh, release, even when they know that they've got reviews. So this, to me, is very disturbing. And um, I think what we need is for movies like Bond to do really well. But even in that universe, we don't know how well it's it's going to open. Really Poor don't. our Owen Gleiberman at, I mean, at Variety is trying to take a stab at the grosses on yeah, that and got into knows. a lot of trouble. But it's it's because nobody knows anymore. Nobody knows. Nobody knows how viable. You you get into the sort of mindset of assuming you know how viable a product is when it's performed well in the past, but. Bond is not a surefire bet in the 21st century. It almost now. plays like a smart movie. Uh, I, got it, I, I tried to describe it as a romance, and people got upset with me because it, it's actually a thriller, of course, aimed at men, of course, but there are a lot of good women in it, and there's a romance at the center of it, and that's going to make it, I hope, more successful. Yeah, I mean, hopefully romance is more successful than action, but I don't know about that one, Anne. I mean, it feels like you're not necessarily selling Bond as Bond. Stephanie Zaharik at Time we Magazine... We deepened Bond in this one, Well, Carrie Fukunaga. What I was going to say is uh, Stephanie Zaharik at writers, Time Magazine... And the writers, Waller-Bridge included. Yeah, it was, it's, it's not a badly written or made movie, but Stephanie Zaharik at Time summed it up in a tweet, which I wish had been a story, because I think there's more to it. And what she said was that it's more cry macho than cry macho, the Eastwood movie, because it really is sort of deconstructing masculinity. And, but I guess I wonder, is at a commercial play? Because if it plays well to us, that's not necessarily you know, the green light that, that this is a slam dunk commercial. There's a hit. lot of that going around. Uh, for those of you who are going to see Power of the Dog soon, uh, it's, the clo clo it's, it's coming up on Friday. Centerpiece, yeah. Yeah, so it's actually um, another deconstructing of, of masculinity, toxic masculinity, the Benedict Cumberbatch character, and so is The Guilty, the Jake Gyllenhaal movie. It's, it's a, there's a, mo a lot of movies tackling this subject. But the movie that I'm pulling for that played so well here and is now actually opening is Titan, which I can never pronounce right. You did no, it right I just now. It. Okay, good. It's, been, it's taken months since Cannes. 
I thought I, w I had it right, but I think nobody wanted to correct me because they weren't sure either. Unless they were a French speaker, then they were probably just laughing behind my back. But honestly, this movie, which won the Palme d'Or, has so many critical accolades behind it, was perfect for a New York Film Festival launch. The question is, now it's going to be in theaters this week. Is that going to translate into something? Because it is a tough sell. It's a wacky movie. It's hard to explain to people. My hope is that word of mouth really keeps building as people discover this movie. Almost like you know, a movie like Mandy, which it wasn't a massive success, but it kept building and developed a cult thing. If this can be that, but even bigger, I think it's, it's a metric of success in this very challenging market. Yeah. So that's, that's my hope. It's certainly not how they would have opened it you know, before the pandemic in any, way, in any stretch. And the question is whether they ever return to the old model. It may be dead forever. And I think the other movie that seems to be getting a good response here on that level so far is Flea, which has you know, started its journey at the top of the year with Sundance. It was one of the opening films. It won an award. That's another one where I feel like you, know, you have to keep word of mouth going. It's got to tie in with the situation with Afghanistan, so it's inc incredibly timely. But it's also difficult to explain. It's an animated documentary about a guy, and he's anonymous in the film, which is how animation allows it to tell his story. But I mean, I, I feel like with, with things like that, the obviousness of Sundance Buzz is not so obvious anymore. And the obviousness of a festival standing ovation, you, you just don't know how to take that and then scale it, turn it into something that's a real world phenomenon. That's why the ground feels so unsettled and, and unstable. We just don't know how to measure anything. One would think that that would have everything going for it. It's one of the best movies of the year. And yet, but I also th I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see how the, re the rest of the year goes, because we spend so much time anticipating the fall festival circuit. And once it's behind us, we don't have the same sort of, you know, bubble of sorts to pretend, well, that played well, so we know it's going to continue. I know, to we're going to well. go back to the amorphous world we've been living in all along. Uh, it's, 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 hard. it's hard to measure. It's very, very disturbing. <laughs> and that was what was so great about being, what's great about festivals is you really do get a sense, and it makes you feel, if you see um, a, a movie like uh, Red Rocket play, uh, you know, at, at Telluride, you know that some of that audience loved it, and some of that audience hated it, and, and you know and that awesome. it, it got talk going. Yeah, we need that. I mean, I've always said, like, consensus is boring. We need things to stir up the conversation. It's not about necessarily rotten or fresh, although from a marketing standpoint, that's part of the conversation. It's about how can you just break through the noise and do something people have never really Which is seen what Tatan has going for it, for sure, because yeah. the, the word has gotten out. Yeah, and I also want to say a word about the closing night film for the festival, which I've seen, called Parallel Mothers, which is a new Almodovar film, obviously a New York Film Festival regular. That's a film that I think is, is I'm, I'm fascinated to see the response to it. Penelope Cruz is fantastic in it, but it's dealing with such a specific subject matter in terms of the sort of specter of the Spanish Civil War, and you, you can't put that in a trailer, I'm afraid. You know, you can't say that this is the reason to go see this movie, but you can use Penelope Cruz. And, you know, you have to think in terms of, like, the marketers in situations like this. I mean, suddenly the value of PR... Is, has never been greater. I mean, it's, I, we, it's always been challenging to get certain films seen, but now it's challenging to get any film seen. It feels like they're, they're, we're entering this new sort of question of, you know, what, what kind of tricks can you play to get people to take that risk and actually enter a movie theater? What's so, so great about Pedro Almodovar is that he is one of the last auteurs who has such a built-in audience that he's earned 
over decades and decades that there will be an audience for that movie, no matter what. Yeah, I have all true. due faith in Pedro. W what's more marketable, Pedro Almodovar or James Bond? A 2021 <laughs> conundrum. No, what you're talking about is the two very separate and distinct universes, the art house universe, which I think is under threat, and the mainstream movie universe, which is under threat, but less so. They are functioning. And then you have the festival circuit part of it as well. I mean, we had this whole year of virtual festivals. New York Film Festival was in 50 states last year. Theoretically awesome, but distributors have not invested in that. People don't want that to be the new model going forward by and large. Now, we know now that Sundance, aside, setting aside their new leadership, we know Sundance is going to do the same thing they did last year. They're going to have the hybrid presence. And I wonder what next year is going to be like in that sense. How much more can you have that sort of virtual format. So the American uh, independents that haven't been seen anywhere and are for sale, that is the question, whether those sellers are going to want those movies to be made available uh, in a uh, virtual uh, platform. They've got the hubs going around the country, so they will have live screenings in various places. And how many people are going to be staying home to watch the movies and not schlepping to the cold and icy Sundance terrain? I'm curious to see that because it will not be the same party hub I don't think that it's been in the past. What's the lure yeah. of actually going there? Well, if we can keep out some of the extra riffraff on Main Street and have a more sort of Sundance return to the roots vibe with familiar faces who are there because they want to be, you know, supporting the independent film community, that's not necessarily a bad thing if they have all those audiences virtually at the same time. So let's call who has taken over for Carrie Putnam. It's uh, Joanna Vicente, who you may all know from the Toronto International Film Festival. She's been there for three years. Yep. And Cameron Bailey's still there. We'll see who replaces her, but she's the new chief at yep. Sundance and certainly has all the skills one would expect uh, you would need in order to fulfill that job. But there are changes coming up. They're going to have to really figure out how to, how to maneuver in the, new, in the new universe. Yeah, and, and, and set the tone, I think, for a lot of other smaller entities. I mean, Sundance may be a nonprofit trying to survive like many others, but they're very powerful. Just like Lincoln Center has a certain kind of influence. Sundance has influence. And it's important to understand that every one of these entities has to continue to evolve in order to survive. You, there's no maintaining the status quo anymore. We need so. Sundance and the New York Film Festival more than ever. And, uh, but we also need all of the regional festivals, all yeah. the other folks that yeah. are uh, 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 actually carrying the ball. And a lot of it has to do with awards. And uh, I will maintain, I know we talk about it too much and people <laughs> get tired of it, but it's important. It a lot matter. of these movies wouldn't get made, wouldn't get seen, wouldn't get attention, wouldn't be out there if it weren't for all of that sort of campaigning that goes on. Yeah. We definitely talk about it too much, but we also can never talk about it enough when it comes to the kinds of movies that seem to find their way into the conversation. I mean, to think about the past year, we tend to forget that Moonlight won Best Picture, that Parasite won Best Picture, that a movie like The Writer, which was shot like guerrilla style in the middle of nowhere. Spawned you know? Chloe Zhao. Yeah. yeah. So we do have, uh, and The Eternals is coming, but we do have um, an interesting race in France. I do find this fascinating. Yes. The idea that the Titan, just because it won the Palme d'Or or the Audience Award in, in Toronto, doesn't have the edge um, with France. You know, could it be Petit Maman from... Celine Siama, or could it be happening? Happening, the film that won Venice, which we still haven't seen, seems like maybe the most sort of conventional 
option there, but it's you know, an abortion drama. I don't know. I haven't seen it. I have a yeah. link. I'm going to watch it. Yeah, good. You get on that because we need the authoritative opinion here. I mean, they want to select something that could get nominated. And, you know, that's, that's what they want. That's the big challenge. But they don't always ever. pick right. So as we know, should we open it up to yeah. questions? Yeah. All right. If anyone has a question in the audience, feel free to put your hand in the air. <laughs> okay. We're getting, we're getting a pitch for a third co-host. Somebody has a resume. I think Come on it, down. I Come on it, down and give us a try. Is that Sean Baker, director of Red Rocket? Our surprise Sean. guest. <laughs> He's not going to speak to me now. <laughs> I did not see that coming. That was the not a plant at all. Easiest job I ever landed. And, and your movie is premiering, what, tonight? Uh, yes, it is. Hi. Well, thank you for making time for, to, to be with us, Sean. It's, it's nice to Hello. Uh, Hi, Sean. see you. So it's what's your history you with the New York Film Festival? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I, um, I used to be a full-time New Yorker, I, uh, and this was my festival. This was, as you said earlier, this was my fall. Um, and so I remember, I think the first film festival, the, the first um, edition of the festival that I, I attended was 1990 when I first hit NYU. So, and it's been my way, you know, just living in New York, it was my way of, you know, catching the prestige titles before, you know, they hit theaters um, and, seeing the st and seeing the films that I possi possibly couldn't see anywhere else. And then, um, you know, years later, <laughs> 25 years later, maybe, I don't know, um, I, I had my first film that, prem that premiered here at the uh, New York Film Festival was uh, my last film, Florida Project. So. Excellent. So what's it feel like to be back with, with the, the, this movie? Because it sounds like you went through quite an ordeal making Red Rocket in Texas in the middle of a pandemic. Every independent film is an ordeal, or every film, I think. Prob just making a film is, is hard enough, but making a film during COVID it makes it 10 times harder. But, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a, a real return to real, my real indie roots. I mean, this was like a 10-person crew, mostly my producers wearing multiple hats, essentially. And uh, it was a down-and-dirty film that we just made uh, because... Well, it's a COVID film for two reasons. It was shot during COVID, but it was also shot due to COVID. We were prepping for another film for, for years after Florida Project that was to be shot up in Vancouver, and that came to a screeching halt uh, this, the minute that uh, COVID hit. So we had this idea for Red Rocket sitting on the back burner that we just pivoted to and uh, made happen. So one of the people I hung out with up in uh, Telluride was uh, Simon Rex, who uh, is amazing in this movie, and, and Jamie Dornan up there um, was just raving to me, a, a fellow actor who understands some of the uh, bravery, I think, that was required for this guy to, to carry this the way he does. And um, you, you cast him at the last minute? Yes, however, he was being thought about for years. <laughs> it's just that we didn't want to reach out to him until we, were, we knew that the film was we had to settle in Texas, we had to do our location scouting, we had to know that it was a real thing. And then we reached out to him and we said, uh, if you're interested, we get in your car and drive to Texas. He goes, I'm doing nothing but sitting in Joshua Tree right now, I'm on my way. So yes, and he is wonderful in the film. He truly, it, it was a miracle that this, I, 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 don't, I can't see any other actor in this role but Simon. I mean, it was, I think it's perfect for him and vice versa. So yeah, yeah. I want to talk about the kind of creative risks that you take, because I do think it's worth exploring a little bit. I mean, 
this is a movie that, as we said while you were listening in the back row, divides people. I mean, you knew it was going to divide people. It's, it's about kind of an awful guy, at least on, on paper, this, this sort of faded porn star trying to recruit somebody and all this stuff that happens in the movie uh, that, you know, make people uncomfortable. And I remember seeing you at Cannes and there was, I mean, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, like a real nervousness of how do you discuss this movie in public without, you know, just having everyone lambast you. And I thought you were, you know, pretty clear headed in the Cannes press conference, which has some horror stories about explaining what you do. But I mean, what has that process been like for you, you know, realizing that you've made something that will get a very powerful reaction? Yeah, I, for a long time, I had my blinders on. You have to do that while you make these sort of movies um, and then take those blinders off and, and get ready for the reactions. And to tell you the truth, I don't know what the reactions will be like yet. I mean, I've shown this overseas. I've showed it at Telluride, and that was, that was as you said, it was, yes, it, it, it divided the audiences there, but for the most part, very well received. Um, at least from what I heard. No, no, it was. <laughs> it, it played well to a lot of people. Um, but, you know, it's just about being honest and frank and, and, and being able... The, part of the reason I made this film, I think, is to, is to spark discussion and just being there to discuss, I think, is important. And also, you know, I, I was tackling many themes in this film, including uh, the theme of division, because I feel our country is so divided right now and I really wanted to tackle that by when I had it set place and also just by all the division in the film all down on the personal levels as well with the amongst characters etc and so um, I'm okay with the film being divisive I'm totally fine with that it's it's how but it's about it's 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 about the you know the discussions that will be sparked from that you know well, I also, I, I think you, you are dealing with another case of toxic masculinity as well. And I, knew that, I know that you hung out with Asghar Farhadi up, at, up in Telluride. What's, what, what are you guys talking about? Oh, you know, I mean, we're, we're, just, we're just actually just exchanging niceties and just <laughs> exchanging our, you know, our, our deep respect for one another, or at least my deep respect for him. I don't know what he thinks of me, but uh, no, we, we just, uh, you know, I, I don't know him that well. We're acquaintances, but we've met, we met in uh, Armenia a few years ago and have just seen each other on the circuit. And I, of course I love his film. I have uh, films. I have not seen his new film. I can't oh, wait. It's a hero. It's great. It's great. Should we open it up? Yeah, Do you have any questions for Sean Baker or, or us? The first question was about the tension between Variety and t or Variety, excuse me, Venice and Tiff, uh, very different. Uh, there, there is probably tension there too. But between Venice and Toronto, the changing dynamic, uh, given that Venice has had all these different big movies like Halloween Kills this year, which was unthinkable a few years ago. I mean, Venice was looking to pick up the the visibility of their films, and and Alberto, the the artistic director there, seemed very savvy about figuring out where the opportunity was because they had these films that win, and then Get and win Oscars. So Joker, for example, was a film they put in competition. And then in an interview, he was saying it was Oscar bound. So basically creating that narrative. Now, does that come at the expense of some of the smaller films at the festival? Probably. But I mean, these are anxious times and it's so competitive in the fall corridor. So it's not surprising. And I do think it is a kind of existential threat to a festival like Toronto, because if the big movies are launching at Venice and they make a stopover at Telluride, 
you know, it's, it's very hard then for Toronto to have sort of its own groove there. I do think that Toronto got the short end of the stick with the pandemic. It really was bad luck for them. In, in, in just in terms of what was going on in Canada, what the COVID protocols were and surges at the time and the planning that went into sending films there in person. Uh, and Venice just had a, a better situation and took advantage of it completely. Um, I don't know what the permanent impact is going to be. That's, that's the question. If Toronto has been diminished in some way, you know, in a sort of heavy way, I, don't, I suspect they're gonna come roaring back. Sean, what do you think? I, I can't speak Staying to it. out of so it. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. Diplomatic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, question so, about awards. So, champions. what's cool is that in this universe, um, they're coming back to screenings uh, in, in New York and LA, at least. And, uh, and there's much more of that going on. Everybody's just schlepping over to the Warner Brothers lot to see Dune. Uh, and they're opening up their fabulous Stephen Ross Theater, which is one of the best theaters in LA. It's as good as the Academy. Weirdly, the Academy is not showing movies in their room. Uh, they'd rather everybody pay for the portal. We talked about this. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so, uh, but, but really, uh, people are seeing movies in theaters again. Although if you ask the Academy, and it's worth noting, that their, uh, their portal is a sustainability effort because they're not making a ton of DVDs and stuff. So it's but been But they set. used to have a screening room yes. full of move Academy members that yes. loved going there because it's the best theater in town. Yeah, yeah, we're missing that for yeah. sure. Other questions from the audience? Don't be shy. <laughs> but the other thing that's going on with the um, awards campaigns is that the talent are still doing Zoom if they're not at a festival. They'll do some festival interviews, but otherwise they're still doing Zoom because the COVID protocols are so hideous that you have to jump through all these hoops in order to meet people in person. So it's interesting. There's some junkets, but they tend to be Zoom junkets. Sean, did you have to work on Zoom when you were doing stuff for Red Rocket, post-production and all that? Uh, well, during production, perhaps, yeah. But uh, during the rollout, um, we've been actually going, we've been festival hopping. So we just got back from Europe where we did uh, San Sebastian and Cinefest in Hungary and Deauville. And you're right, I, I noticed that there's more press because they're taking advantage of that small window they have with filmmakers not knowing if we're gonna be able to return when, if or when the film is actually released. So uh, I was doing a lot of in-person press actually. There. I bet that felt good. Yeah, yeah, it felt great to see, yes, the one-on-one -on -one again, the real, real conversations, uh, yeah. And to get an international context again for this film after you, you sort of you started at Cannes and then came to the U.S. and then went back abroad. Yes, and every country and every audience has, and every festival, they have their own way of uh, uh, sh showing uh, what they think of a film. So you can never really gauge, yeah, even at Telluride, all four screenings there were all different in terms of audience uh, reaction, at least their vocal reaction. Mm -hmm. So I was standing outside the first screening at Telluride going, I have no idea how that went. I have no idea how that went. Whereas Can, they were a little more vocal about it. There's that ovation if they like your film. So um, I'm still going through that. I'm still trying to figure out like. <laughs> well, how do you feel about what we've been talking about in terms of showing your film in theaters for a well, long time? You know, I'm, I'm a big advocate. Of, I, I actually am. 
I'm, I'm, I'm starting to become, I think, a dinosaur in the, my, my thinking, um, meaning that, hey, if it was up to me, I'd return to the six-month window. I'd return to the 1980s where we had to wait a year for a VHS tape. Why? Because it elevates the importance of movies. It puts them on a pedestal. It's something you have to wait for. I always see, and I, I know I'm going to be upsetting some people, but I always saw home entertainment as an afterthought. You know, uh, you present your film, you put it out, the, you know, we, as the filmmakers should be the ones dictating how they want their film to be uh, launched into the world and presented to the public. And if, and if it was up to me with my films, they would all have a, theat a long, theat uh, they would have a theatrical release. How long they would stay in theaters would be up to the audiences, but that window would exist before it, 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 it turns over to home entertainment. Now, of course, we deal with piracy. That's, that's a whole other issue, but um, I'm against the day and date thing 100%. That's and where I think the piracy that, comes yeah, in. Yeah, 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 that's true. And um, I think, wasn't, didn't we just see a very positive results from Sang-Chi? Absolutely. Right, so I don't understand why we're not just saying, okay, here's the model that works. That's that's my opinion. <laughs> but that, that's a big Marvel movie. I yeah, mean, that's true. you know, it's we'll need a few more. Case that's studies. true. Yes, so. but if you just uh, I've heard literally, and I think I may even heard it from you two at one point on one of your uh, podcasts where you said, "Oh well, it you watched one of the HBO Max films at home, mm -hmm. be, you know." And I know we're dealing with COVID, so that's a whole other thing too. But you know, when you're given, we're all human beings. You know, you are you going to? There's some nights where it's like it's easier to turn on HBO Max than to go out, spend a lot of money, and maybe even four hours of your time going to and from a theater. There's a, you know, it's a to-do. It's in a, you know, so um, just giving that option, I think, starts to chip away at the theatrical, you know, this, the, the theatrical market. There's like something to be said for yeah. how, if you know you have to really wait, you can't see it any other way, and you really want to see it, you're going to go to the theater. Yeah. And That's what it comes down to. In many ways, yes. So yeah. you'll go to James Bond, obviously. <laughs> I will be seeing James Bond on the big screen, yes. Can I ask you something? We'll, we'll give audiences one last shot of questions, but since we have you, I don't want to pigeonhole you as the iPhone guy. I know that was really annoying after Tangerine. Mm -hmm. But then they did sort of start working with you on, on, and stuff. So mm. the iPhone 13 has this thing, cinematic mode. Looks pretty cool. It's sitting at sitting for me at home. They, they sent it. I have yet to yeah. get home and experiment so with eventually. it, but I have a feeling that it's very similar to the app I used called Filmic Pro, which just basically allows you to manually uh, control the, the, the video camera, the digital, you know, on the, on the phone. Uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to be announcing this, but Shi uh, Ching Zhou, who is my, one of my producers on my film, and she is a, uh, we co-directed Takeout together. She's finally making her a solo uh, debut, directorial debut, and uh, she'll be shooting on the iPhone 13. Yeah, right on. So Excellent. She, yes. she can field all the questions yeah. now. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. But you're done with it, right? You're, you're a 16 millimeter guy for life. No, right? Oh, well, no, I shot Florida on 35. Um, and I, I'm celluloid as long as I can afford it. <laughs> and all that's right, a whole go to see Red Rocket. <laughs> What I said earlier about having those blinders on, I, I apply that to everything. So, no, you, you, I, I went out, I think my whole entire filmmaking team went out with the intention, let's shoot something that we would shoot it at any other time, whether, you know, um, and with the focus being, this is intended for a theatrical release, we're gonna shoot it that way. Um, we even made it a period piece so that we didn't even 
there we didn't want this film to 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 ever even be considered like a covid film you know we didn't want we didn't want any signs of that any traces of that so so no no i had to just go in as optimistically as possible even if it's like a blind faith that uh this will somehow make its way out there to the to the theaters what always awes me about you, Sean, is that you just set yourself a very high degree of difficulty every time, <laughs> I know, and I set you and up. you and you give us something that no one else would give us, and that is unexpected and unpredictable and satisfying. And I always want to uh, give you kudos for that. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. You must Thank feel you. like you're on the Apocalypse Now track. Like, when is it going to be too big and, and <laughs> crazy that you'll grow a giant beard and isolate yourself in the jungle? <laughs> He'll take the budget when they give it to him, <laughs> I'm sure. We had another question here. Just in case the mic didn't pick that up, she was basically asking about the impending IATSE strike and whether uh, some real measurable change is possible with everything going on there. So. What's so interesting about this is that it's always been very difficult for a strike to be called with the IA because there's so many different chapters all around the country and so many different issues so because it, it, it's representing all these different parts of the industry. And I am feeling like they're going to do it this time. And there's because so many issues have built up and during the pandemic especially uh, with all the production demands they have been uh, the, the producers the filmmakers have hate to say it been taking advantage uh, because they want to churn out so much stuff I'm curious to know what you think Sean yeah well as a WGA and a DGA member I obviously stand in solidarity with IATSE and uh, I don't I I have been traveling so I'm really not I'm not 100% knowledgeable where we are right now with that, but um, yeah, uh, that's all I have to say. Well, it's a good thing you're not shooting a movie now, because then you'd really have to know about yeah, it. Exactly. Other questions from the audience? Definitely Pulp Fiction at yeah. the New York Film Festival. I just want to make sure people heard that, because she was asking, <laughs> what's the most extreme reaction to a movie you've seen at a film festival? And that is legendary Pulp Fiction and NYFA. So at the moment that that, that needle is going into the John Travolta's chest, there was a Uma man, Thurman's yeah, Uma Thurman's chest, John, it, it, it became, uh, there was a man who, uh, Eugene, do you remember, was it a, an actual, is he still here? No. Um, it, 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 somebody attack, was carried right? out. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny because that, that seems to be the ultimate sort of marketing, uh, you know, win, right? That's what happened with Titane in Toronto and, and her other movie, Raw. So I, I feel like she read the lore and was like, how can I make a movie that just like give, at, at least gives one person a heart attack in the audience so that they talk about it when it comes out? Um, I, I'm sure you have some good ones. I was going to say, actually, the one that I really like talking about is this movie from Rick Alverson called The Comedy, which you probably know, which is... Uh, incredibly uncomfortable character study about this privileged guy. Uh, and the more that you watch it, the more you come to understand it's not really a comedy, it's a study of privilege and the kind of mania of it in our society. And there were so many walkouts, but then at the end, those of us who stayed were like the core audience. Like you could visually see the core audience of that for that movie. And it was like maybe 15 people in the echoes. Like, not a lot. Maybe not the best movie to launch a competition at Sundance for strategic purposes. But I loved it because I was I'm so glad they programmed that movie at a festival. I don't know how else it'll ever get that platform again. So I live for that kind of stuff. What's yours? You must have something good. Over the years, I've seen, you know, uh, very harsh reactions, maybe 
inappropriate questions, the Q and A's. I remember that Abel Ferrara King of New York 1990 screening here was pretty crazy. But, um, but uh, I have my own personal one. I was here with New York, the, I mean, I'm sorry, here with Florida Project and we were at our premiere at the Alice Tully and we were, it, it was nearing the end credits. So they had us come out into, that, into the box where the spotlight will hit me and my three little actors, Brooklyn, <laughs> Christopher, and Valeria, Valeria from Florida Project. Well, we, came, we brought them in a little early, and uh, Brooklyn, who was very, very in touch with her emotions, <laughs> saw herself on screen crying and started crying. And then that caused the two other children to start crying. <laughs> and I was sitting in this box with three children going, oh, guys, wait, oh, no, no, this is a joyous time where we're supposed to be laughing and no crying. This is just a movie. Just, we know the movie. What's going on? And I had to, it was a moment where I was extremely nervous that the spotlight was going to hit me at any second with three cry try crying children around me. But uh, we all calmed down, and thank God it, it didn't, you know, they... They dried their tears seconds before the spotlight hit us, but uh, it yeah. all I'll always remember that. Out. Yeah, yes, we'll yeah. see how it goes with Simon Rex tonight. Hopefully, he <laughs> yeah. can keep it together. <laughs> I hope he bursts into tears. <laughs> well, thank you so thank much you. for being here, Thon. It's a pleasure thank to you so have much you. for having this me. This was great. All right. Really fun to talk with you all. Have a good one.